Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through all the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. Let's go ahead now and turn to our scripture reading today, Isaiah 30, 18 through 26. It's on, on page 591 in your pew hymnal. And uh, Isaiah was uh, called by by many in the church uh, throughout history as as the fifth gospel. And as as I get to preach in Mark, uh, I'm, I'm guessing Isaiah may well be the Old Testament text. We read uh, quite, a bit in, quite a bit in conjunction with the uh, passage in, in Mark. So, uh, Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord God is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, let your, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone! And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days, in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. We're going to read, continue reading in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 31. So if you want to turn there, that would be page 836. Um, and we remember we left off verse 15 Jesus had been commissioned by God the Father empowered by the Holy Spirit at his baptism for ministry he'd gone into the wilderness and what Adam could not complete in his temptation against Satan when he fell Jesus Christ was able to win the victory over Satan in the wilderness and defeat him for a time. 
And then he went to go start preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom was in fact there wherever Jesus was. So now we come to verse 16 through 31. Let us hear the word of God. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers, make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going along a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with, his, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, took her by the hand, and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. We thank you, Father, for your word. May it be a blessing to us, and may we use it to glorify you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Jesus is starting his ministry, and he, he, he goes along, and he sees that uh, Andrew and Peter are 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 in the in their boats in the Sea of Galilee where Jesus has gone since he's left the Judean wilderness and he's now in the Galilean wilderness, so to speak. He goes from wilderness to wilderness here. Um, and he calls Peter and Andrew and they, and they immediately follow him. Once again, we see this word immediately everywhere in this, uh, in this book of Mark. They immediately follow him and and they had known Jesus already, it seems. God, in, God, in John's Gospel, in the first chapter, we, we see in verses 35 through 42 that, that Andrew was one of uh, John the Baptist's disciples. And when Jesus came, uh, John the Baptist kind of introduced Jesus, and Andrew and Peter went and hung out with Jesus for a time uh, in the account in John, so they were they were a little bit acquainted with him. Andrew was a, a disciple of John the Baptist, and and we don't know if Peter was, very possibly could have been, but anyways, he went along with his with his brother Andrew and hung out with Jesus a little bit. And then apparently a little later on, they went about their business, and here we see him uh, getting ready to go fishing uh, in in the Sea of Galilee. Shortly after that. He calls James and John. And I have no idea what their relationship with Jesus was, if at all. 
For all we know, they just went up and followed him. Boom. Jesus calls them, and they leave their nets, uh, they leave their servants, uh, and their, their father, and they just, they just follow Jesus. And Jesus has told them, we're going to make you fishers of men. No more are, are they going to cast their nets out into the sea and catch fish. Now they're casting their nets upon the souls of men, hoping to, to bring them in to the kingdom of God as they go forth and, and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And this, this, this would have been reminiscent of, of, of Old Testament teachings about, uh, about being fishers of men as well. So these, these men are now turning to Jesus. With John in prison, many of his disciples are following Jesus now. And Jesus starts gathering his disciples. He's got four now. Going to have twelve, we know, right? We know this story. And, and they go into Capernaum. This is, this is where Peter lives. It's a, it's a coastal town uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And as a faithful Jew, Jesus and his, his followers go into the synagogue and oftentimes they would let a, a visiting itinerant preacher say some words. And so Jesus goes into the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is interesting. In that day, the rabbinic method was of teaching how the rabbis did things was, uh, well, I mean, there was kind of a, a Socratic method to it, you know, where you're just asking a bunch of questions, and that can sometimes be a good way of doing things, but then again, in the way that they often did it, it just didn't, they, they weren't terribly pointed questions, they were, they would just leave you wondering what, okay, you know, and they might read a text, and then ask some some questions and, and, and you'd wonder, well, what's this got to do with it? They weren't tying up Scripture. They weren't explaining it. As, as we read in Nehemiah when the Word was preached, when Ezra preached the Word, he explained what it meant. He explained the tenor of the text, the proper understanding. Um, they would often appeal, these rabbis and, and scribes, just just to, to former rabbis and scribes. And it was just this endless appeal to some sort of nebulous authority in the past that didn't really explain things a whole lot better either. Jesus, on the other hand, went up there. He looked at the Word of God. He looked at the scroll. And he preached what it meant. He preached with authority. As one who understood, of course, he was God, so anything he said was the word of God. But he understood the text, and he preached it, and he made sure that people knew that they needed to respond to it as well. It wasn't just a bunch of words that we think about, 
you know, great heavenly thoughts, which are good in and of themselves, but they got to be put to work. And this is what Jesus would, this is what he did on the Sermon on the Mount, was it not? If you look at at that uh, incredible sermon, it's 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 all about. You've heard said. In other words, the scribe said this. Well, I tell you this. He was preaching in the authority of God and the authority of God's word, not not some endless repetition of, of previous uh, scholars and rabbis. Now, Jesus did use questioning. We, we see that. He didn't generally teach the large crowds that way so much. And when he did, it was to make a definitive point. Oftentimes he would ask questions individually of people. But his preaching method, which hopefully New Testament preachers follow, is you take the Word of God and you explain the text in front of you. And you make application as best as you can for the people of God. So he, he teaches this way and the people are astonished. And we, and we see that continues at the end of this little, little story here. At the very end they say the same thing pretty much. And in the midst of this, in the synagogue, there's a, there's a guy possessed by a, by a demon. It's kind of sad to think that, I mean, I, this gentleman had maybe been coming to synagogue for how long? Possessed by a demon? We don't, don't know for sure. But at this point, he is fully possessed pretty much. He is, the, the demon is speaking through him. And, and so we're continuing that, that great struggle. Uh, well, it's been going on you know, since the garden, of course. But that great struggle that in, in the Gospel of Mark started in the wilderness with Jesus and Satan and now is continuing as Satan is sending forth his, his demons to continue to, to provoke uh, Jesus, to terrorize the people that are made in God's image uh, and to disfigure them, to turn them from, from the truth of God. This demon basically tells Jesus, Stay out of my business. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? These are terms you read in the Old Testament like this that where it's uh, uh, an indication that, that you know there's about to be a battle, there's about to be a war, but not quite yet. And he, and he calls him the Holy One of God. This demon knows who Jesus is. Clearly knows who Jesus is. And in fact, we think he may well be saying this because he wants to control Jesus. If you mention the name, sometimes uh, back then they thought that you controlled that person because you were able to, to know who they really were. And so uh, that would be one way of you know, keeping them in your power. And what was Jesus' response? Did he engage in a lengthy debate? No. No. This is basically based, Jesus tells him to shut up and go away. 
Get out of here. Kind of when we were reading the passage in Isaiah, when we were talking about how we're supposed to treat the idols, uh, it's kind of similar language. Uh, you know, casting out the idols, getting rid of the idols. And here Jesus is casting out the demon. Satan's spawn, the wicked angel. Jesus hates the fact that demons deform people made in the image of God. He hates that. Satan knows he can't defeat Jesus. He knows his end is clear. He knows that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. He knows this. But if he can disfigure and corrupt people made in the image of God, that that makes him very happy. And Jesus hates this. He cast out the demon. And and once again, the the congregation is pretty impressed. They're astonished. They ask the same question. What kind of what kind of teaching is this? What what authority he has? He didn't utter some kind of magical incantation or or have some uh, spectacle, uh, some formality that they followed. If you you know watch you know movies where they have uh, Catholic priests do the exorcism and stuff, it's kind of an elaborate ceremony kind of a thing. Um, it's not what we see here whatsoever. Jesus just <coughs> cast them out, tells them to go. He's not not wanted here. This isn't his place. Get out of here. And and this sparks astonishment once again. And it's, as we'll get to later, we know that this doesn't have a necessarily lasting influence amongst the people of Capernaum. Capernaum. It seems that uh, they largely reject Christ, but so this is a warning to us. Oh yeah, we can see the power of Christ. We see it every day. We can read the Word of God. We can know it. But if we don't let it sink into our hearts, let the Spirit work in us, it goes away. It's like the seed by the side of the road. It gets plucked up by the birds. So Jesus is restoring the kingdom of God. He's preaching the word of God in power. He's got his disciples starting to form his uh, group of twelve. And he's casting out demons. He's, He's... Bringing forth the kingdom of God. He's putting things straight. uh, Little bit by little bit. And it's a busy day and they go to Peter's house. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Now keep this very quiet. The Pope doesn't know that Peter was married. The Pope doesn't know that. Um, I, I, 
didn't really look into that much, but this is, uh, I don't know what they do with this passage in the Catholic Church. They don't believe the apostles were married, and so that's the, the foundation of the dogma of uh, uh, the celibate, unmarried priesthood. Um, but this is pretty clear. I mean, if you're going to have a mother-in-law, you got to have a wife, don't you? So Peter is married. And they undoubtedly were, were hungry and needing rest. And, and lo and behold, they don't have supper. Peter's mother-in-law is, is sick. Luke lets us know that it's uh, really serious illness. She's maybe deathly sick, maybe on her deathbed. And, and, and notice what, what Jesus didn't do. The last couple of years, we've kind of turned things around in our society from how things have been done in a lot of ways. Jesus didn't stay away from her. He did not social distance. He didn't tell her, hey, in two weeks, you're quarantined, I'll come back, and we'll see what's going on. In that day, there were diseases that would just wipe out whole villages, and yet the, the Christian approach is always to, to be there. It's to touch. It's to pray for. It's to be with them. So Jesus came. He took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. She made supper. I don't know about you, but when I'm sick and I get better, I, I don't I don't get up that next minute and, and go around like a whirling dervish. No. I have to have, grab a little something to eat, have a little something to drink. Maybe a couple hours later, I'll be ready to, you know, be productive. This is a complete and total immediate healing as we see almost always in the cases of, of Jesus healing those who are sick. <clears throat> he heals them and there's no doubt that it was His work. And so, she serves them. Uh, and that would have been at this time of day that it most likely would have been, would have been supper. And this is a, uh, uh, another case. Jesus is making the world right. Peter's mother-in-law is going to die someday, but at this point in time, God decided to heal, to demonstrate His power, and to show what the kingdom is. When we're never going to have to worry about being healed again. We're all going to be perfectly healthy, all ready to serve and bless one another. Jesus is making things right, giving us a picture of what it's going to be like that day when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. So what what do we learn from all this? I mean, the first thing Jesus does after 
gathering a few disciples <coughs> is he preaches. That was the first thing he did after he left uh, the wilderness. He went and he preached. Preaching the kingdom of God is coming. Later on when they find him praying in just a few verses up from here, he tells them, we've got to go to the next town. That's why I came, to go and preach. The healings are great. Those are fantastic. But if we're not healed in our souls, if Christ doesn't turn our stony heart to flesh, you know, we're still going to die in our sins someday, no matter if we're healed or not. God's Word is preeminent. There's a reason why in, in Reformed churches, this is central. The pulpit is central. There's deep theological significance to that. We don't have the table, the mass set up. We have the pulpit around which everything else works. The Word of God informs everything we do. The preaching of the Word, the sacraments, our singing, and everything. And we also must not underestimate uh, demonic activity. As a Reformed believer, I have no issue understanding my depravity, my being born in sin. Every good work I do, you know, as good as it is, is still in some way polluted by uh, by my sin. Um, that's just central to what Scripture teaches and, and what we focus on a lot. Praise the Lord, because, you know, if Satan was around, we'd probably we'd still do dumb things. You know, and, and we look around the world as a reformed believer, I, I see uh, the world's crazy, it's nuts. Um, I mean it's it, it's just going sideways at best. But we oftentimes we we as reformed believers don't give much attention to the fact that Satan is still active. He's active behind the world. He's whispering in our ears. And he possesses some people still. You know, uh, we have a story coming up in a chapter or two about the uh, demoniac. And, and what's he do? He goes around uh, cutting himself up, breaking loose all the chains they put him on, and just cutting himself up, defacing the image of God made in him. Do we this in this day still have a, a, an issue with, with people cutting themselves up? Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean that Satan is possessing them, but, but that's a that's a thing in in a lot of a uh, lot of places where you know, especially teenagers will cut themselves up, deface themselves. And even if it's not because of satanic possession, you can still imagine that that he's there whispering to them. Do this. Deface yourself. Hurt yourself. We see Satan working all over the place. And we don't want to overestimate Satan and his demons. They're 
They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. They've got no power over Jesus. As Luther said, hey, Satan is still God's Satan. God is in control. And yeah, we do need to focus on the fact that the things we can directly control, like our sin and, and, and maybe even helping the, the way around us, but we do have to leave a place for the fact that we have to watch out for Satan and his devices in our lives. And finally, we do need to pray for and lay hands on those who need Christ's healing touch. You know, just it's a wonderful blessing to have faithful doctors and nurses and caregivers. Yet we do have an underlying principle as well that that Scripture teaches we are to lay hands on those who are sick. That does not mean God's obligated to heal them, of course. It doesn't even mean that you're not going to be in danger. But it does mean that and we've got to be there for people when they're sick. It, it, it just crushes me to, to think of all the tens of thousands of people who in the last few years didn't have anybody with them when they were dying. No family. No friends. No pastor. And they just died in their loneliness. We need to be there. As a church, blessing them and praying for them and, and even casting ourselves upon them and, and then knowing that we are putting ourselves in danger possibly. The early church, this is one of the practical ways that, that it grew through the power of the Holy Spirit was that Christians would take care of those that were sent away, quarantined if you will, And even if those folks weren't healed, and even if those Christians died, people saw the love of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit working. So, the ministries of mercy are so vital. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For every blessing we have in Christ and for what you're going to do for us, Lord, that day when we don't have to worry about sickness or illness, when the demons will be in the lake of fire where they belong and where we will all be your disciples and apostles and, uh, and we just worship you in spirit and truth and we just pray that you would be with one another, you would help us to be with one another in love. Help us to love and forgive one another and, and just give us wisdom as we go through this next week, Lord. In your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.